I praise God with you that we are able to gather together in worship and that the Lord in His goodness has blessed us in the ways that He has and especially over these last few days. Please turn in your Bibles as we continue our series in Zechariah to the third chapter of Zechariah. One of the high points of Old Testament biblical revelation is this chapter, full of gospel truth. And remember, this 6th century B.C. prophet began in the first six verses of chapter 1, calling the people of God to repentance. And then the Lord gave to him eight visions filled with hope for God's people. And we now come to this vision of the priest with the filthy clothes. Will you bow with me in prayer before reading? O Lord our God, we eagerly come to this text and we are thankful that we may gather and worship thy name. And we pray that the Holy Spirit will draw out of darkness into light those who may be lost and undone in their sin. And for those of us who have been regenerated by the Spirit, granted faith so that we may trust in Christ and are justified completely from all things by Him. We pray that we will have a deeper understanding of that and the relationship of these truths to the certainty of faith. Father, hear our prayer go before us as we read the word and as it is expounded and proclaimed, we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, the only mediator between God and man, there is no other in his name. Amen. People of God, please take your copy of God's word and stand. We read the third chapter of Zechariah. This is the word of the Lord. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments, and the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him, and to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. 
In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. People of God, most of you undoubtedly know the dictum regarding the relationship between the Old and the New Testaments, that the new is hidden in the old and the old is revealed in the new. This is true. But in this remarkable passage that we have just read from the Old Testament this morning, the new is hardly hidden at all. And as we look at this passage, I think that you'll see just what I mean when I say that. This vision brings consolation to those who have been overwhelmed with a sense of their sin. How could God accept them? How could God even look upon them with anything but judgment because of their sins? How could the holy God receive them? How could they do the Lord's work to which he is calling them to up and build the temple of the Lord that had fallen in the Babylonian captivity? Have you ever experienced this, child of God? How vile and stained my soul, how deep my sin is. And as we focus there and sometimes wrongly apart from the gospel, then it leads to paralysis and it leads to decline in our Christian walk. And there may be others here today who will, for the very first time, experience within your heart and soul a real conviction of sin, not just a twinge of conscience, not just a natural kind of repentance, but a deep repentance wrought in your soul by the Holy Spirit of God as you see yourself in the presence of a holy God and in need of a righteous advocate. How can God accept me? Well, the answer is found in the text before us. The first thing we see in this third chapter of Zechariah is a day in court. And it's important that we understand the significance of the scene before us. Joshua the high priest stands before the Lord in the sanctuary, evidently in this vision, picturing the temple as completed. And the angel of the Lord is identified with Jehovah in verse 2, the one who does the rebuking of Satan. This, of course, as we have been saying earlier in Zechariah, is a pre-incarnate Christophany of Christ. And Satan is at the Lord's right, is at the Lord's um, hand, he's at Joshua's right hand, condemning Joshua, and he is standing before the Lord and demanding of the Lord a guilty verdict, a guilty verdict because of his sin, because of his iniquity. And so you see the seriousness of this. If Joshua is condemned, all of God's people are condemned because this Joshua is the high priest of the people of God. He is the people's representative. He is the one that would enter into the most holy place on the day of atonement and offer atonement for their sins. He does not stand alone, but he stands before the Lord in his official capacity as a representative of God's people. So how is it that Satan can demand a guilty verdict for Joshua and the people of God due to his attack on their high priest? Well, The answer to that question we see secondly is the high priest is here in filthy garments. The high priest wore garments mirroring kingly glory except on the day of atonement and then he wore white 
representing purity and righteousness. And in white, he went before the veil into the presence of God and there made atonement for their souls. But here, in the passage before us, we have the high priest dressed in white. No, he is not dressed in white. He is dressed, chapter 3, verse 3 says, in zoim, which is the Hebrew word for being befouled with excrements. It is used, or a form of the word is used in Isaiah 28, 8, and translated loathsome vomit. Now, we actually must understand what Zechariah the prophet saw in this vision. To be faithful to the text, we must see it for what it is. Into the presence of God like this, he's laden with the sins of God's people represented as excrement, as loathsome vomit. Isaiah 64, 6, we have all become like one who was unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. In God's holy presence, the holy God in his presence dressed this way. Remember, Zechariah also was of the priestly line. And for him as a priest also to see this in this vision would have been horrible and overwhelming for his soul. I wonder, have you considered what sin really is in the sight of a holy God? Have you considered this is how God sees sin? Proverbs 30.12, there are those who are clean in their own eyes but are not washed from their filth. Have you been washed from your filthiness, from your sin original sin and actual sin. The sin that we have because we were in union with Adam when he fell and all his posterity also fell in and with him in his first transgression and also because of the actual sin that you and I have performed. Have you acknowledged your sin before God? Have you seen it for what it really is? Have you seen it as hell deserving? So how can this priest in this vision, offer an atonement for anyone. He is worthy of death, and therefore all that he represents are worthy of death before the holy God. Have you acknowledged your sin? Have you asked, how can God forgive me my sins? Do you know and feel the incongruity as painted for us in this passage, sin in God's holy presence? Well, if you have so acknowledged by faith this truth and received Christ as Lord and Savior, it is because of the work of the Holy Spirit within you. It is because of His regenerating grace that gave you faith to embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. One of the old hymn writers said, a sinner is a sacred thing. The Holy Ghost has made him so. The hymn writer simply means that in order to understand the depth of your sin and to be conscious of it and aware of it so that, so that you flee to Jesus Christ for refuge, the Spirit of God helps you to see your sinfulness. But we also sing, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." And so if your heart is fearing the judgment of God because of your sin, then may that same grace that shows you sin also show you your need of the Savior, the only one who can save and redeem you. 
May He take the law of God in its perfection and convict you, and in His goodness, grace, and mercy save you for Christ's sake. But then we move on in the text, and we see that Satan's accusation is rebuked of the Lord. So the third thing is Satan's accusation and the Lord's rebuke. Essentially, we can imagine what the accusation was. Here is Joshua the high priest. He's clothed in filthy garments, and he says, how can you accept this man? How can you receive this priest? How can you receive those whom he represents? And he accuses us too, believer. He accuses us in our consciences because daily we fail and we sin and we need to believe and we need to repent. You recall how it's put in the book of Revelation chapter 12. In that wonderful passage in which it speaks of Satan, and the name, of course, Satan means the accuser. We read in verse 10 of chapter 12, And I heard a loud voice in heaven. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come, for the accuser of the brethren has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. That's what Satan is doing, accusing before the Lord, the brethren, those who have trusted in Christ. But notice verse 11, and they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. We conquer by the blood of the Lamb. Martin Luther said it well, that is the way of the devil. He greatly inflates one's sin and magnifies it and makes God's judgments horrible even as Revelation 12.10 tells us, that old dragon accuses the saints day and night before our God. Now when Luther says here he greatly inflates one's sin, he's not denying that every sin is deserving of God's infinite displeasure. No, he is saying that the evil one uses that sin within our lives so that the grace of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ is obscured. Now, Zechariah comes into this scene as Jehovah, the Lord, is rebuking Satan. And so we see in verse 2, the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? The Lord himself rebukes Satan. What does rebuke mean? And he says it twice, I rebuke you. It means that the Lord swept Satan's accusation clean away. Christ does this. Our great high priest does this. In this passage, it is the angel of the Lord identified as Jehovah, this pre-incarnate Christophany, the true high priest of his people, who does this. Christ, our righteous advocate, does this. For the Scriptures say, I write these things that you sin not, but if anyone does sin, we have, we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And a main part of the ground of the rebuke is Jehovah's election of His own people. Notice how He put it in verse 2. 
the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Jerusalem meaning, of course, the people of God, not just the materials of the city. Jerusalem did not choose Jehovah. Jehovah chose Jerusalem. And in electing grace, the Lord saved his people as one saves a burning brand out of the fire. That's me. That's where I would have remained forever had God in his electing grace not reached down to redeem and save. Election is a gospel doctrine. It is the very heart of the gospel. Sinners in their sin would never choose God. He chooses them. And the believer's security depends upon this. I cannot help but wonder if the Apostle Paul had this in mind when he wrote in chapter 8 of the book of Romans, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Election is not based on any foreseen faith or merit in us, for we had none. Rather, it is all of grace from first to last. The whole point of the passage ultimately is to show that God does not receive his people on the basis of their own personal merit. We have none. But on the basis of the merit of another imputed to us and received by faith. What could poor Joshua have done had the Lord not rebuked? Could he have cleaned himself up? Oh, any attempt to have cleaned up excrement and vomit would simply have spread the sin around. My friend, my Christian friend, I know you want to be faithful. I see it in the lives of so many here. You want to be faithful, but your justification, your acceptance with God, your reception in God's court of law, does not depend upon your faithfulness, but upon the faithfulness of Christ Jesus to redeem us. Here is the true priestly office. Joshua is a true Joshua, pointing to the Joshua to come, for Jesus, as you will remember, is simply the Greek form of the Hebrew Joshua. Satan is speechless. Rebuked of the Lord, he's speechless. We hear nothing from him. As the text proceeds, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? And here is the certainty of our faith. Do you see the connection? As Calvin said, let us therefore know that God is not simply the enemy of Satan, but also one who has taken us under his protection and who will preserve us safe to the end. Hence, God is our Redeemer and the eternal guardian of our salvation is armed against Satan in order to restrain him. The warfare then is troublesome and difficult, but the victory is not doubtful, for God ever stands on our side. You know even from this week, sin within your soul, sin within your heart, you've confessed, you have believed, you have trusted, you've gone to your righteous advocate, but your conscience has been distressed and been disturbed. God ever stands, believer. God ever stands. 
on your side. He's not against you. He's for you. He's accepted you in Jesus Christ, your Redeemer. But there's more in the text, and let's look at the cleansing in verses 4 and 5. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. What happens, of course, is that Jesus, the Redeemer, Jehovah, justifies his people. He justifies Joshua so that he may serve as the high priest of his people, typically pointing to Christ. He justifies his people. The angel of the Lord Christ, our righteous advocate, commands that Joshua's filthy clothes be removed and clean garments are put upon him. Festal garments, they are called. Festal garments, they were called in the book of Exodus. And then Zechariah is so entirely taken up in the scene that he, he, he blurts out, put a clean turban on him. And of course, they were going to, and they did. The Lord clothed him in this way. And so in Exodus 28, 36 through 38, we see the significance of the turban, the mitre that would be placed upon the head of the high priest. What is the significance of that? Because on the mitre were the words, holy to the Lord. Holy to the Lord. And the Scriptures say it shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. That's why he wanted the mitre to be placed upon him so that the acceptance of the people of God before the Lord would be obvious and plain to everyone. And Satan says to to us as believers in Christ, you are a great sinner. And I say, yes, I'm a great sinner. But I have an infinitely greater Savior than my sin. And so he is declaring him righteous and those representing him, represented by him as righteous. And justification is God's declarative act. It is grounded in the merits of our Redeemer. I was speaking with James Harvey a few weeks back, maybe a, maybe a month or two back, and we were talking about this, this verse and this passage of the brand saved from the fire. And he made the comment, we're brand saved from the burning because Christ went into the fire for us. And how true that is. Verse 4, behold, I have taken, hear it in your soul, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And that is every sinner's basic and fundamental need. A cloak of righteousness, perfect merit, imputed to your account. In our great high priest, receiving him by faith, we too are justified by grace through faith. He did not infuse righteousness into Joshua, the Roman Catholic view of justification. He imputed legal righteousness to Joshua, to to those he represents. He needed, and we must have, a legal righteousness imputed to us, credited to us, chalked up to our accounts in God's court of law. 
And that is the greatest need of every person in this world, to have the righteousness of Christ imputed to your account. His merit, not your supposed merit, you have none. Have you trusted in Christ alone for your justification? Now, the text goes on, and it speaks of the character of the cleanser. So make that your fifth point, the cleanser or the justifier. Who is this one who cleanses? Who is this one who justifies in this glorious manner in this passage? Well, as we move on in verses 6 and 7, the assurance of access is given to Joshua and to all of those who govern that are there with him in this vision in the way of obedience, not on the basis of obedience. He has promised access into God's presence. But the basis of assurance must be the merit of Christ alone. Practical godliness is fruit, not root. And then the one who justifies is described as the text moves on in four ways. Let me briefly touch upon them. He is called in verse 8, my servant. And this is a title of the Messiah. Isaiah 42.1, Isaiah 53.11, various places. He is promising the Messiah, the servant of the Lord who would come to fulfill the eternal plan of redemption of his people. The one who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many, who is the servant of the Lord. And then in verse 8, he is also called the branch. Now, this is a messianic title, a messianic name that is used in Jeremiah that was dependent on Isaiah and now is used in this vision in Zechariah 3. Behind it is the garden imagery of ancient Israel. Israel is a garden that should grow, but because of sin, God destroys the garden but leaves a stump. And from this stump, there is the remnant theme. From this thump, stump, this stump, there is the the, the, the tree that was cut, and the next season, a sprout will shoot up. Some of the trees that were taken down here, you'll see a stump, and then you'll see later a shoot that will come from it, indicating life. In Jeremiah 23 and 33, the branch is named the Messiah, which is a play on Zedekiah that means Jehovah is just. A righteous king will come, and he is called, we are told, in Jeremiah, Jehovah Sikenu, which means the Lord our righteousness. In other words, the one who justifies is the Messiah, the servant of the Lord. Only he can justify. Do you need a clean conscience before God? The only one who can give you this clean conscience is Jesus Christ, trusted, believed in, leaned upon, depended upon who is the Lord, our righteousness. The Belgic Confession, one of the great confessions of the Protestant Reformation, speaking to believers in Jesus Christ, says this, Though we do good works, we do not found our salvation upon them, for we do no work but what is polluted by our flesh and also punishable. And although we could perform such work, still the remembrance of one sin is sufficient to make God reject them. Thus then, listen to this, thus 
then we would be always in doubt, tossed to and fro without any certainty, and our poor consciences continually vexed if they relied not on the merits of the suffering and death of our Savior. Our consciences would be continually vexed if we did not rely completely and utterly and totally on the merit of Christ alone because He is the branch, the Lord, our righteousness. And then in verse 9, He is described as a stone with seven eyes. The stone probably relates to the rebuilding of the temple and the church is called the, the living stones and Christ is the cornerstone and he is our assurance and he is our firm foundation and Isaiah 28:16 he was the stone that was rejected by the builders but that God raised up and the seven eyes are the number of perfection and God's omniscience watching over Christ who would come and cover his people and the stone will be beautified as an engraver beautifies precious stone but how does the servant How does the branch, how does the one called the stone, how does he justify sinners? How? Look at verse 9. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. There's that title again, Yahweh Sabaot used 53 times in the book of Zechariah, the Lord of hosts. That represents his power. It represents all that he is. And he is the one who says at the end of verse 9, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. How does this one described in these ways How does he justify? He removed. This is a promise, and it's already been fulfilled. He removed the iniquity of the land in a single day. This is the most remarkable promise in this passage. Note, it is God who gave the law who says this in which he had instituted sacrifices morning and evening every day for hundreds of years, rivers of blood and oil. He says, I will remove the sin of the land, not through a continual sacrifice, but through a one-time efficacious sacrifice. He is the one who says he would remove the sin of the land in one day. How? What does this mean? Well, you see people of God 2,000 years ago. The great high priest of his people, Jesus Christ, hung upon a cross. And Satan accused him. And Satan brought condemnation. How can you accept him? He is filthy with the sins of sinners. Look, he carries an infinitely sinful load upon that cross. And for our sakes, unlike Joshua here, though in the resurrection he is vindicated, when he hung upon that cross, carrying that infinite load of the sins of his people, 
For our sakes, God did not receive him, but God condemned him, or rather our sin in him. He was our curse bearer. But turn to a few passages in the book of Hebrews with me. In the seventh chapter of the book of Hebrews. In verse 27. In contradistinction to the high priest of the people of God in the Old Testament, that was just a type of the one to come, we read in Hebrews 7.27. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. The Greek here, eph, hapax, eph, apox, once for all, in a single day, if you will, removing the sin of his people. Or in chapter 9, verse 12, Speaking again of our great high priest and redemption through his sacrificial blood, he says in Hebrews 9.12, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption, once for all through his own blood, securing our eternal redemption. And then in chapter 10 of the book of Hebrews, verses 10 through 12. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That's what Jesus did for us. That's what verse 9 means about the one who would come that would take away the sins of the land in a single day. In condemning him, the Lord condemned our condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And he can remain just and the justifier of him who believes in Jesus. From that cross comes the perfect, the pure robe of righteousness for all who believe in him. And then, one with another, we have peace with God. And so, Zechariah 3.10 ends with an invitation for our neighbors, an invitation to sit under his vine or under his fig tree. Peace 
prosperity, rest. I want to make two concluding applications. First of all, oh my friend, if you are here and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, come to Him, trust in Christ, and come just as you are. Don't try and clean up the mess. You come as you are. It is all of grace. And there is not a more unhappy soul in the world than one who seeks peace with God through his own works of righteousness, which he does not even have and he cannot produce. That is the most miserable soul in the world. Do not trust to any claim to righteousness of your own, but only trust the righteousness that can justify in God's courtroom. Because here we have no low view of sin. We must take sin seriously before a holy God. But also, we find here the one genuine, real, everlasting hope of all who put their trust in Christ. Come to Christ. And then, Christian, I want to ask you, to apply this truth to your own soul and to your own life, as Martin Luther applied it. This recording of this event in the life of Martin Luther, recorded in many places, I'm quoting it from David Barron, it reads like this. Some of my readers may have visited visited the Wartburg, Wartburg, Wartburg Castle and had pointed out to them the black spot on one of the walls of the room which Luther occupied during his benevolently intended imprisonment. The legend connected with it is this. One night during this mournful solitude, when suffering from great depression, because as he himself expresses it in a letter to Melanchthon dated May 24, 1521, this is Luther, I do see myself insensible and hardened, a slave to sloth, rarely, alas, praying, unable even to utter a groan for the church while my untamed flesh burns with devouring flame. Luther then was in a depressed state because of his personal sin. The great reformer dreamt that Satan appeared to him with a long scroll in which were carefully written the many sins and transgressions of which he was guilty from his birth and which the evil one proceeded to read out, mocking the while that such a sinner as he should ever think of being called to do service for God or even of escaping himself from hell. As the long list was being read, Luther's terrors grew and his agonies of soul increased. At last, however, rousing himself, he jumped up and exclaimed, It is all true, Satan, and many more sins which I have committed in my life which are known to God only. But right at the bottom of your list, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanseth us from all sin. And grasping the inkstand on his table, he threw it at the devil who soon fled, the memorial of it being left in the ink splash on the wall.
I'm calling upon us believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, yes, to take our personal, everyday faith and repentance, to take our sins seriously, but always in the context of the gospel. Not to allow ourselves to be driven downward by the evil one as he accuses because of our weakness and frailty, but to take these wondrous truths and to throw your ink well at the devil. Now, children, if there's an ink spot on your wall at home, I was about to say, I'll know you've taken seriously this text, but let your parents explain to you that there is something called a metaphor. And metaphorically, we must throw our ink well at the devil, saying to him, yes, it's true. All that you say of me is true. I am a sinner, morally a sinner. But in God's court of law, in terms of how he receives and accepts me, I'm no sinner at all. I am accepted in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so I write at the bottom of the list that could be far longer than you are producing within my conscience. I write at the bottom of the list, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's only Son, cleanseth us from all sin. Will you learn to do that, people of God? So Luther wrote beautifully, now he wears new clothes, that is, a happy and joyful conscience which no longer flees from God, which thinks nothing evil about God, but hopes for every good thing. Thus, the fresh clothes do not mean works, but grace and faith. The conscience is equipped not with works, but with faith in order to find peace in God's presence. Amen and amen.